Welcome to Ethios with Bemneti Meskin from ethiospodcast.com. Ethios is a podcast that chronicles the lives and accomplishments of people of Ethiopian heritage and people of Ethiopian influence around the world. It's about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what inspires them. My guest today is Dr. Tedros Masela Gabru, a physician, author, and painter. You have to actually suffer in order to become a physician. I mean, it is suffering. There's nothing, there's no other word for it. And to, to suffer for it, you have to believe that on the other end, you're going to get something that's going to make it all, all worth it. Dr. Tedros Masala Gabru is a plastic reconstructive surgeon. He received his bachelor's in medical anthropology and biology at Stanford University in California. He attended medical school at the University of California at San Francisco, after which he went on to do his residency in general surgery at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Dr. Tedros Masella went on to do plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Illinois in Chicago, as well as a one-year fellowship in reconstructive microsurgery at Changang University in Taiwan. He currently lives in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and is the founder of the Icon Center of Special Surgery, providing plastic surgery, vascular surgery, and general surgery services. He is currently in the construction phase of a new surgical center, as well as a training fellowship in Addis Ababa. In the little spare time that he has, he paints and he writes non-fiction books in the area of practical philosophy. He just completed his first book, which will be coming out later this year. The name of the book is called Wisdom, Revelations in the Quest for Life Success. This is the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. Tedros Masella. So please make sure to join us for part two next week on www.ethiospodcast.com or on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Dr. Tedros, welcome to Ethios. Thank you very much. So let's jump right into it. I want to find out about your childhood and your upbringing. After doing some research, I found out that you were born in the U.S., but you came back to Ethiopia at the age of three. And can you tell us what your upbringing was like and, and what, what you remember of Ethiopia? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I, do, I came when I was three and a half to, the, to Ethiopia when my father finished his PhD um, exam in uh, Michigan. Um, I have two or three memories of the U.S., so um, I, I didn't have to let them tell me exactly uh, what my beginning was. But uh, that being said, I came here uh, to Addis uh, about three and a half. Uh, I do remember that my aunt, through my, my brother's sister, who was blind, living in the palace grounds. So I do remember going to visit her and then being told to rush out when it was about eight or nine in the evening because they would let out the wild animals. Oh, wow. um, so I had this vivid imagination of bears and, and lions and all that stuff. I never saw it. I never saw them, but I, <laughs> I scurried out with, with, the, with the rest of them. And I, I don't um, want to date you, but what, what years are, are we talking about here? This is now 1971, two, three kind of time. Oh, wow. Yeah, 1971 to three, right before the revolution. So I, I experienced the revolution, but, you know, as a kid, uh, 
I did not really witness what was going on out here, all the gunshot wounds at night. And I thought they were really cool because it's just like the movies that I'd see on TV. So, you know, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great thing being a kid because you can go through any, any disaster of sorts and um, turn it to something that's fantasy. Um, I went to the Sanford English school uh, from the beginning and that's where I kind of uh, went through my, um, uh, early education. Uh, to me, um, uh, I had a great time at Sanford. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed my childhood. I mean, my, the only thing that I remember as an issue was searching, you know, finding means and ways of, of uh, hooking up with my friends so we can play. I mean, that, that was the only thing I, I remember as a nagging problem, uh, which I usually solved um, with a lot of ingenuity. But um, uh, I finished form four, which is 11th grade, and um, and then was sent to the US uh, by myself. Um, it, you know, it's amazing how, you know, I find it very fascinating to note and observe how, you know, when you put things out in the universe, there's just, there's this, you know, I don't know what kind of a vicious cycle, but there's a to and fro with the universe um, in such a way that my father, for example, had gone to Los Angeles to uh, get his master's at UCLA. He had befriended this woman who had an interest in international students at the International House at UCLA. And she liked him and a Taiwanese fellow from the group. And she would you know, spend time entertaining him, um, showing them parts of American culture, which is either jazz shows or symphonies or plays and, uh, and the like. Um, and they developed a, a, a very nice um, relationship that they would write to each other. Um, and as far as I heard, she also had uh, paid for my diaper service when I was in Michigan <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember any diapers on me, but, but I, did, I did. I had some remaining cloth diapers, which I tell my brother that he used my second hand-me-down. So... <laughs> Uh, that being said, she would uh, send me books when I was a kid um, uh, on my birthday. So I had a lot of books from her. And of, uh, she died eventually. And her daughter, with whom my dad had a somewhat of a relationship, you know, they would write formally. Um, so when it came time about, you know, when I was reaching 14, things were kind of scary. Young kids were being drafted into the army. So he thought, or my family thought it'd be better for me to leave the country. So he um, wrote a bunch of letters uh, that he uh, gave to a person who had diplomatic pouch, so she wouldn't be censored. You can't write these things in, in the post office. And uh, they distributed it to the few people that he knew uh, in the US. And um, uh, so Marsha Burnham, who is uh, my, um, what I consider now my American mom, um, she said uh, in retrospect that she felt that God tapped her on the shoulder when she received my father's letter and said, your turn is up. Wow. Uh, she's Jewish American and her mother had been uh, ex um, quite involved in uh, attaining safety for Jewish immigrants during the times of the Nazis. So they have a lot of history with this regard and knowing that they lost a fair number of relatives themselves uh, to the Nazis. And so she sent a very smart letter 
for my um, inviting me to stay with them. And, and since I was an American citizen, so it was uh, relatively easy for me to leave the country. Uh, and in August of 1984, uh, I boarded a plane to Los Angeles. So um, under the care of uh, uh, my father's friend's daughter, Marsha Burnham, and I got installed as the original Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So I, I lived in Bel-Air. Wow. I had no idea of the significance <laughs> because, you know, I lived in Bole, but right next to a big <laughs> mansion behind a, a small hut. So I never understood, or I, I was not, a, I did not appreciate the significance of segregated neighborhoods based mm -hmm. on income. But, um, but uh, I, I may have been the poorest person in Bel-Air, but I... I, I <laughs> Very interesting. Um, what was your what was your household like growing up? You, you mentioned that your dad had pursued um, a, a career in the medical industry. What was so the dynamic dad, like at home? What were, what were your parents like? What was your family life like? Uh, my my dad was a microbiologist, so he was a professor at the Black Lion Hospital. Uh, he was even the dean for quite a while. He worked hard. A very disciplined person. This is in uh, the glory worked, days of the Black Lion Hospital, where. It was the hospital yes. to go to in, in pretty much the whole yes. nation, or yeah. the, the sorry, not the nation, but the country. Yes, he was, you know, he was part of the, the founding group of of physicians who were sent abroad, uh, got trained, educated, and came back, um, and um, and then had to witness the eventual dilapidation of the institution they helped mm. build. Mm. Um, but uh, he was a very disciplined and a very uh, perfectionist man. Mm. Uh, my mom worked for the ECA at the UN. Um, and, uh, um, and then I had a younger brother who came out nine years later than I did. Mm. So it was as though I was kind of an oldie child. And... Mm. Um, uh, it was quiet. It was nice. Uh, as I said, my major activity was uh, just playing. I, I don't. I don't even recall studying. Um, uh, the the English school wasn't that strenuous. It wasn't academically that much challenging, and I didn't have much interest um, in studying. Um, I can say I basically spent time playing at school, and then after I get home, playing in the neighborhood with friends. And that's how I spent the first 14 years of my life. <laughs> uh, well, I know, I know you, you, uh, you, that's your memory of it, but I'm sure you were a smart student. I'm sure you got good grades, uh, you know, after, you know, doing a little bit of research, even in your younger days, you seem to have stood out uh, scholastically. Is this true? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think... You know, the few times, like, you know, my dad once made me study hard, like, because he said that he was number one, he was always number one, you know, and he would show me his records from high school and all that stuff. And um, so he made me study once during my fourth grade, and I, and I became number three in my class. And then mm. when I was excited, I told him, hey, dad, I, I got number, you know, third place. And he kind of knocked me down and he goes, you know, that's nothing to be proud of. I was number one all the whole time. I, so in response, I said, well, if three is not good enough, then to hell with it. <laughs> I'm not going to further. And I replied to him, 
I said, well, I guess, you know, in your day, they must have not been very smart students. <laughs> so that was the end of his uh, tirade as well. But uh, I don't think I stood out much. I, I think if I studied, I could have done much better. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't a poor student, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, I just, uh, I don't know. I don't even remember my record while I was here. I didn't, I didn't it wasn't much of an issue. I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, uh, but I was not aware of what kind of academia is necessary to become a doctor. Um, uh, and I just kind of passed through, uh, those early days, uh, uh, with, uh, you know, gaiety and, and, in relaxed and playfulness. So mm. it was, uh, I was just a child and I was able to be a child and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> you said fairly at a young age that you knew you wanted to be a doctor and uh, there was there's an interview uh, with you on EBS TV where you said somewhere around the age of eight that you knew you wanted to be a doctor do you, do you remember what led up to that or you know, the time and, and kind of the events that maybe kind of led you to that very clear path that you wanted to travel um, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it, it basically demonstrates how when you think you know something that you really don't know. Hmm. But, um, um, at, you know, at the mature age of seven, all I did was just kind of walk in my father's footsteps at the at the Black Lion Hospital. I think it was called Lul Mokonin Hospital then, but um, it was clean. It was impressive. It was an impre- impressive edifice. There's not many people... You know, the nurses had these high heels that, that you hear it echo down the hall. Mm. You know, everybody was well-dressed. It's It had a unique smell, not a bad smell. Um, and people were deferent to my dad and they and be, tried to be friendly with me as well. And, and um, you know, and I'd go through his books and I just thought, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. So that is basically exposure. It has nothing to do with any wisdom or comparing anything or, mm. or, or whatever. I just... It was a you know based on what I was ex- exposed to, I had a gut gut reaction, and I and I just went with it, and I stuck with it, and I almost I'll say I I didn't question it until maybe a decade ago. But <laughs> <laughs> so time goes by, you graduate high school, you 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 go out to California. What was that experience like living with a Jewish family? Were you exposed to the the religion, the culture, and what was your expectations of the U.S.? Did you have a clear understanding of what the U.S. was like, or was it a culture shock when you landed? Uh, sure. I had a very clear expectation for the U.S., which was based on the, the, the last movie that I had seen right before I went, which was Saturday Night Live. So <laughs> Saturday Night Fever, sorry. Saturday Night Fever right. with John Travolta. <laughs> so you can imagine my shock when I arrived in LAX. I'm like, what, what the hell is this? <laughs> um and um uh you know it's a it's a western thought uh, or or thinking to say you know how is the culture shock I, I used to be asked that several times and as you'd read in my book i, I would provide an answer later but you know I, I had absolutely no culture shock i mean or there's so few cultural differences that i actually experienced um but i definitely did have a shock uh, um that would play out without me being fully cognizant of what it was until literally, um, you know, a few years ago. Um, you know, when it comes to culture shock, uh, you know, 
first of all, I, I never had any religion. My parents were, were Christian, but weren't actively practicing it. Or if they did, they didn't show me <laughs> how they were practicing it. Um, I went to an English run school. So, you know, my first language is English. My, Amharic is my second. Um, I, I never understood, and I still don't understand the, the significance behind any of the national holidays here in Ethiopia. Um, I basically grew up in Addis and, and small areas within Addis, you know, very limited areas I was able to run around. Uh, so my exposure in Ethiopia and Ethiopian culture was actually very limited. Um, I, I was apt more to accept Darwinian principles than, you know, Orthodox Christian or Islam or whatever else is around. So, you know, when I went to the U.S., I understood, for the most part, um, the Western culture much, much more than I did the Ethiopian culture. And, I, and I'm learning that even more and more every day now that I'm back here. Um, so the, I had no specific culture shock. Culture shock to me entails, you know, somebody who is, you know, living in the jungle, maybe in a small little village, you know, with with no pants, and then suddenly is thrust into New York, and then, you know, and you're just kind of bewildered, like what the <laughs> hell is going on? When you go from Addis to the U.S. or any place else, I, you know, I doubt you're gonna have. Um, uh, culture shock as a, as a major process in play. Um, so that was not an issue. But that being said, you know, the family that took me in, they also were not practicing Jews. They're Jews by, you know, they get together for for their holidays and, um, and they keep close with their relatives and friends who were mostly Jewish, but they really didn't, they didn't practice. They didn't try to proselytize. Um, you know, we were on the same wavelength when it came to that. Um, they tried to kind of, you know, push me to be, uh, you know, how the Western called uh, cultured. So they'll take me to symphonies or things of that nature, which I all resisted. I just, and, and after a couple of times, they all gave up. So um, there, there wasn't much in the way of cultural imposition um, uh, in that regard. Uh, that being said, I would consider the, the first two years of my life in uh, the U.S. as one of the most challenging life experiences that I could have endured and overcome. Um, you know, I, my, uh, you know, the family that I stayed with were both, you know, kind of oldish at the time. So, you know, after a little while, they wanted me to be with somebody else who had kids. So I started a, a journey of, of living in different households, all related kind of friends or family, whatever. Uh, and for the last two years of my high school, uh, I lived in seven different households. <laughs> You're kidding me. No. <laughs> and what were, what were those households and experiences like? Um, you know, it would start out great. I would, you know, I'd go to one household, they'd love me and all that stuff. And then, um, and then would come a point where they'd want to be my parents, meaning mm. they'd tell me how to think, what mm. to think, you know, what I should like, what I should not like. And, you know, I found, you know, the initial, you know, interactions were always great. I would, uh, you know, I, I ran with it, but I would never allow anybody to impose, you know, what I should feel about myself or think about myself in relation to, to them or any other, you know, um, culture or race. So that was basically the, the, um, 
the line upon which I, I did not allow anybody to to cross over. Mm. Um, I don't know whether I should ruin uh, you reading the book later, but <laughs> you know what I <laughs> what I what I call it is not culture shock, but social shock. Gotcha. Um, I don't think if you take a person from the Amazonian jungle and put him into you know an urban jungle anywhere you know in the world, I think that person will be able to adapt to living in that you know, setting very quickly. Um, the issue at hand or the issue that's difficult is how do you relate socially? Mm. Where are you in the social strata of that new society that you're in? How do they understand who you are and how does that um, compare with how you think you are? So that was basically a major challenge, which you know, I would say I endured. I didn't overcome until much later, but um, I had to deal with it. Um, so they would think, A, I'm a black person. I never thought of myself as a, as a skin color. Um, uh, and then number two, they think I'm an African. And I still don't un understand how all the people in one continent can be lumped together. Mm. Uh, number three, uh, it was just at the cusp when all the media was uh, blaring out these ads for, you know, money for these, you know, starving Ethiopian kids and, and the news. It was a major propaganda news, whatever you call it. Um, and so if I say I'm Ethiopian, then this, they would all automatically think, ah, you're starving, you're poor, you're stupid, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So I, I did not accept it, and I would not accept it. And that was basically uh, the major issue I had. And something that I faced when I went there without knowing how to deal with it. There was no manual for it. There's nobody who can give me advice on how to deal with it. Um, so that was the challenge. That's what I call it, social shock, not culture shock. Um, and it made the first two years uh, quite miserable. It takes us to the next phase of your life. So you went on to, to do your undergrad studies at Stanford. Can you take us through that journey and, and why and how and, and what influences uh, that you had that, that uh, enabled you to make that decision? Uh, well, that, um, you know, then after high school was college. So college, Stanford was just undergrad. Um, yeah, so that, you know, I, I went to Stanford. It was an easy choice. Uh, number one was the name. Number two, they gave me the best financial package and I didn't have to pay or I had to pay very little for it. And in fact, I ended up having extra money from it. So. You know, the Stanford choice was made, you know, um, uh, through thinking and calculation with very minimal mathematics involved. I see. Um, it was the it medical school to... decision that I think was, yes. was the big one. Right? Okay. Yes. Okay. So with medical school, I had applied, to, you know, I got into Harvard uh, Medical School and then uh, UC San Francisco. Um, you see San Francisco was ranked number two and Harvard was number one at that time, but the rankings kind of change all the time. I don't really don't know how they make the rankings, but, um, so I wanted to go to Harvard again for the name. So I went to visit, um, and, um, uh, every experience I had during my, you know, two day visit just did not, um, uh, sit well with me. I, I just, I knew I would not enjoy that experience. And I was not sure what made it any better than than not just UCSF, but any other medical school for that matter. Because all the textbooks are the same. It's just your ability to be able to kind of go through it. And then clinically, you know, what you learn clinically has nothing to do with, 
you know, uh, what great research the professor does and all that stuff. So, you know, I went there, I checked it out, and I realized also a financial decision. I said, you know, I'm going to end up owing uh, almost a quarter of a million dollars uh, more to go to Harvard than UC San Francisco. So I decided, and very wisely so, to, um, um, uh, to matriculate at uh, UC San Francisco. Although Harvard is still to this day regarded as probably the best school to go to for either law or uh, medicine. So that decision was, was it easy for you or because it's, you seem to had a, you had a clear understanding that it was a, a clear choice. Um, you know, it was, you know, it, in the end, it ended up being a, a clear decision. And, um, you know, I, I also, when it comes to, you know, status, you know, to me, status is more like flatus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, I went to, to Stanford. It was Stanford is considered to be a great learning educational um, institution. Um, and I was extremely underwhelmed um, with what I was able to get there educationally. Now, it doesn't mean that what is available is, is poor quality, but uh, at the end of my four years at Stanford, I had you know, a nagging feeling that status really did not really translate into you know, a, a realistic enhancement of your education. Um, and when it came to UC San Francisco or, or Harvard, um, uh, a, a number one and number two, number three, all the way down to, I don't think, even 15, I don't think, I really could not imagine there's any significant difference in terms of quality of education. Um, and I would learn that actually much, much more so on, with my next experience, which was um, my uh, residency in general surgery. Um, I had applied to, again, the top schools and I had, you know, you read in my book, but I, you know, it's something I figured out only, I think maybe two or three years ago, but uh, for whatever reason, I didn't match in, in, the, in, the, in my top choices. And I matched at the University of Arizona, which was at the bottom of my choice, which was a shock. I mean, that was a, a tremendous shock. And I thought I was basically dropped, you know, from anything that was significant down to, you know, the dungeons of, of despair by having to go to, a, you know, what they call a second tier institution of learning. And I really thought, I mean, based on my experience at UCSF, I mean, UCSF, all the professors, the, you know, especially the surgeons, but all of them pretty much you know, would behave and act as though, you know, they they worked right under you know the noses of God Himself because they were just so high and almighty and and so famed and all that stuff. You as a student, the impression that you get is, you know, wow, these these must be, you know, the, the you know the 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 best and 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 leaders of uh, of academic medicine in the world. I mean, that's basically what they make you make you feel. Um, so when I went to University of Arizona, um, I really expected them to be, I don't know what I, I expected them to have two, you know, two thumbs is basically how I look at it. <laughs> and it took me about three months or four months, three, four months before I, I just kind of realized, wait, you know, I can actually get a really great technical training that I never would have been able to get either at Harvard or, 
or UCSF or any of these so-called high-powered institutions. Um, and for the academic part is up to you. It's, uh, it's how much you read, how much you, um, uh, you know, um, collaborate, do research uh, and all that stuff, which is just individual. And, and when I observed the chief residents, they all appear to be unusually facile, uh, very uh, good diagnostically uh, and surgically, they're very capable. And um, I did not see the same type of dexterity amongst the chief residents at UCSF. Um, although the chief residents at UCSF appeared more manly, they appeared more authoritarian, uh, they were more disciplined and were able to um, uh, recount facts and appear smart and all that stuff. But they didn't know how to operate. Um, their diagnosis was pretty shoddy. Now, they weren't really good when it came to clinical activity. I, uh, just because their exposure and the way their training went was not uh, amenable to that. So. I made the conscious decision to stay at University of Arizona, even though I was able to get another spot back at UCSF. Um, and, and I think that was another wise decision that I undertook. So after that, I found there's no real um, credibility to um, reputation of institution uh, in terms of education. Did you ever have like moments where you said, why am I doing this or, or considered changing your your career or anything or, or were you determined that this was the only option for you you know when i try to recollect uh, uh of course i mean um, the road is not easy you know it's um, you are thrown into a dark and damp tunnel um because you believe there is light at, you know at the end of it um there's I don't think it is an, you know, enjoyable for any human being to spend all that time studying and reading and you know, recounting and spouting back what you read. And then on top of that, when you're uh, in clinical training, um, you're up all night, every night, um, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. You're always uh, being dominated by those just a year or two years above you. Those next to you are trying to um, put you down. I mean, everybody's your enemy, kind of thing. Um, it's 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 like a a long and protracted rite of passage. Uh, I think the only thing that may come close to it is you know training in the military to become a, a soldier. I don't think there's any other you know example that comes close. I was just gonna say there there's a there's a documentary about what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. And they, they literally weed out 90% of the, the, the best of the best so that only, you know, the 10% elite make it through as, as these warriors. And I feel like med school does that, right? It, it weeds out people who are maybe not really in it or might not cut it as a, as a doctor. Is that true? Well, you see, that's the, it's a game. It's a psychological game. Um, the best don't make it to be the doctors necessarily. I didn't find it's you know I, I don't I wouldn't know what the Navy SEAL guys go through I, I think that's just physical mm -hmm. you know and and mental will mm -hmm. um, for us you know I've seen pretty shoddy people be able to get through the system um, it doesn't guarantee you get the top person in fact I think it's it's more apt to corrupt 
the good person into being a bad person uh, <laughs> just in the process of getting through uh, that affair. Um, it, you know, what it does is, you know, there's this thing, I think for anything, you know, when you want to get people, when you want to be able to control people in a certain setting, you make, you know, you make um, uh, the carrot look really golden from the from the distance. So then they're able to, you know, accept uh, and you know, and withstand the stick that you're about to give them for for years. <laughs> so, you know, it's a typical human game of you know, hey, listen, you're going to be done in the end. You're going to be this great um, godlike person. You know, you will be, you know, you'll be so important and all that stuff, but before then, you have to be on your knees, and um, and it works on young people. It worked on me. It worked on others. Um, it doesn't weed out the best. It doesn't make you know. It's it's just you know. It's an onerous and oppressive system by which they can control you. This is how usually a lot of cults uh, are built. It's the same <laughs> process. Um, because at the end of being an, a Navy SEAL, what are you going to do? You're going to go and and risk your own life. To go kill other people um, at a, at a at a moment's notice, just because somebody orders you. I mean, you may not believe, you may not even know what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's not your choice. So you become a killing machine. So how do you turn somebody to, you know, to feel good, uh, undertaking the most heinous crimes in the world, and and you make him go through this process. And when you look at being a physician, um, it's almost the same thing because you have to actually suffer in order to become a physician. I mean, it is suffering. There's nothing, there's no other word for it. And to, to suffer for it, you have to believe that on the other end, you're going to get something that's going to make it all, all worth it. Um, so that's the, that's the trick, so to speak. So do you think the, the stereotype of the apathetic doctor, which is what, you know, the anecdote that most of us expect is as a result of the system of like, of what you've gone through, the grind that you've gone through? Uh, apathetic meaning uh, non-caring, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, what, you know, you're trained, first you're trained on, on understanding information and processing information. Um, you know, there's active parts of the training and then there's the passive parts of the training. So I'm trained to, you know, to be able to diagnose uh, appendicitis and go in, take it out and, close you up and send you home uh, safely in one piece. That I'm trained to do. Uh, now that is intentional. Um, and if you're unable to do that, then it's, you know, you have a difficult time making a good career out of it, but you know, some bad surgeons are still able to have good careers. Um, then there's the other or the secondary training that I don't think anyone just sits down and thinks about. I think it just happens uh, automatically, which is, um, your teachers are almost never your friends. Um, uh, your colleagues are also never your friends and your students are never your friends. Everybody's in competition. So whoever is a year above you um, uh, in this, it's a very strictly hierarchical system um, and it's built upon bullying one another. <laughs> so because all the young ones are so desperate to make it to the other end, the older ones use this a short period of uh, superiority to demonstrate their superior over you. Um, and, it's, and they create a situation by which uh, you can't collude with, with your colleague um, because you're judged 
in comparison to your colleague. So uh, I'll be considered good only if the guy next to me is bad. That's kind of how it works. Instead of if we both knew everything and did everything perfectly, we both won't get good grades. It's likely they'll just give us average grades. But if the guy next to me is an, a complete you know, idiot, um, then and, and, I'm a, and I'm a less idiot, then I'll, I might get like the top grade uh, just because it's all comparative. So because it's very competitive, comparative, um, hierarchical, superior, inferior, by the time you go through decades of this, you know, you view your view of other human beings is not is not healthy. It's a very unhealthy way of um, uh, learning how to exist in this world. So most physicians, by the end of their training, are actually bad bad people. They're just forced in a situ in a profession that ought to be good, but they practice it in a way that you know is not good. Um, but I don't think they're even able to, you know, to see what happens to them and, you know, how they've changed, what they're doing, what the benefit of what they're doing is. I, I think these things, almost none of them get to sit down and, and figure out and try to, you know, uh, ameliorate. Dr. Tedros, so you went on to do plastic and reconstructive surgery in Chicago at the University of Illinois. What... What prompted you to get into plastic surgery? Um, in, well, initially, I was all interested. This is even as a as a medical early medical school. You know, I knew I wanted to go into surgery, and then I wanted to do something big, something great. So I thought of transplant surgery, and then I didn't like that. And then I thought of pediatric surgery. Uh, I thought, of, and then finally, I thought of cardiac surgery, and I wanted to do pediatric cardiac surgery because I was looking for something great to accomplish. And I worked with one of the cardiac surgeons who was pretty famed in Arizona. Um, but then just something in me just didn't feel right about it. And I, and I did a rotation in plastic surgery uh, that I made up on my own um, during my elective. And I had an absolutely wonderful time with uh, four different plastic surgeons. You know, one did hand, one did the face, one did everything, one did the cosmetic. And I thought it was so variable. There were so many artistic things about it. Um, it was very nifty uh, and it didn't involve life and death. And they all seemed relatively uh, happy compared to um, uh, the general surgeons or the cardiac surgeons and all that stuff. So the, then I made the decision that, you know, improving quantity of life was not as valued or valuable as improving quality of life. Um, but really, it was actually more of a gut feeling. I just said, well, this, this I love and I'm going to do. And then everything else that I thought thereafter was just rationalization of what I had already kind of decided um, uh, in my gut. Um, so that's kind of how I, and I, am, I had to rush to make the application because I had, you know, I decided relatively late. Um, and then Chicago was the program that I was um, able to match into. There seems to be two sides of plastic surgery, two sides of the quality of life that you mentioned. One being the kind of the vanity of plastic surgery, which some of us hear about, in, about you know, when celebrities undergo it, versus the the necessity of plastic surgery where people have gone through these dramatic um, 
you know, accidents and, and really depend on plastic surgery to change their, their quality of life. Did, did, you, did you ever feel, were you ever working on both those types of uh, patients and was there conflict within you of, of which you preferred doing or did, did it not matter to you? Um, sure, it did. Uh, you know, everybody thinks of cosmetic surgery as being plastic surgery, but that's a, it's actually not even a quarter of what the field encompasses. Um, you know, when you think of plastic and reconstructive surgery, you know, you um, the, there's a, of course the aesthetic side, uh, things done purely for the improvement of appearance. Um, uh, you know, some you know it's usually as, as noted to be said, oh well, it's to make people look you know, look better to, to improve their appearance. And then I, I, there's one old plastic surgeon who said, no, no, actually people are just trying to appear less ugly, but that's just a matter of... <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a bad and thing. Then, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, glass full or half full or half empty. But, um, and then when you look at reconstructive surgery, it's, it's a whole huge... Uh, aspect of of surgery, uh, it involves hand surgery, which is its its own you know subspecialty. It includes um, uh, microsurgery, which is you know what I trained at in uh, in um, uh, Taiwan. Uh, it includes uh, craniofacial surgery, which is surgery on the bones of the face, um, and then you know, all sorts of other things: removal of tumors and reconstruction after tumors, accidents, and all that stuff. So, you know, the full gamut of plastic surgery is actually much much uh, wider and larger than than even general surgery. So what appears out, you know, in the lay public's uh, um, uh, ideas about plastic surgery is, is often quite distorted. Um, so it includes all of it. Now, when it, you know, I the way I thought I was going to approach my career was I was going to do, in my mind anyway, I thought I was going to do 15% aesthetic and and 85% reconstructive. The reason being. Um, you know, it is really enjoyable, in, you know, to fix something that needs to be fixed. Um, and then, and yet that doesn't pay as well. So I thought, you know what, uh, since people complain of insurance reimbursements being too low and all that stuff, you know, I'd have a practice where I do 15% um, uh, doing little nip, nip and tucks, you know, to make some extra cash. And then I can kind of feed my soul by doing you know, all the accidents and all that stuff. So that's kind of how I felt as a resident, you know, without really understanding how the world really works. So then you went on to do a one-year fellowship in reconstructive microsurgery in Taiwan, which you mentioned. Uh, what was the draw there? Why Taiwan? And uh, what was your experience there? So at the, at the end of my training, which was actually a very protracted, long period, most people usually kind of get on with it. Uh, after the first, you know, residency, but um, I felt the need to um, to specialize further. I I never considered myself kind of like a fast talker, smoother, you know, smooth schmoozer. I was never like that. And you know, when I looked at those some of the people in plastic surgery who were who, or in, in general surgery who were who had very good practices, they appeared to be kind of socially a little more defter than the others. Um, so I wanted my, the way I, I wanted to project my career was I wanted to do, be able to do things that very few, if any, are able to do. Um, so to really subspecialize in something that was unique 
and uh, and difficult so I can kind of you know make my mark so to speak so it, you know I had when I was in general surgery my plastic surgery attending had told me of this program in in um, Taiwan and in order to beef up my CV I thought hey maybe I'll go you know do a year so they did accept me except my program director who was a an evil guy uh, strongly suggested I withdrew my application to Taiwan. And I was still going to go anyway, but a friend, another professor friend of mine told me, he says, well, you know, yeah, nobody's going to stop you from going, but when you come back, you may not have a program to graduate from. So, you know, I decided to stay and finish out my program in Arizona. So now this was a second chance when by accident, my chairman in, in plastic surgery you know, informed me and the other resident on his program to go to University of Chicago because this Taiwanese professor was going to give a talk on microsurgery. So I was just happy just to leave his room. So we went across <laughs> the street and uh, you know, the, the program director of Taiwan was giving this talk about, you know, taking two toes from the feet and putting them onto the hand, wow. you know, these flaps from tissues from one place to the other that I'd never seen before. And in numbers that I just could not imagine, thousands. Wow. So immediately I was just completely taken. And I went up to him and I said, you know, I'd love to apply to come to your program. Do you have any positions available? He said, yes. He gave me his email um, and I put in my application. I didn't hear from him until uh, June and I was going to be done literally June 30th. I had no other choice. I had, I made no other plans. I knew I had to go. Don't ask me why. I still don't understand it, but I knew in my gut I absolutely had to go to Taiwan. After one lecture, you were so sure. After one lecture, that you had you had to do this. Absolutely, and um, I didn't want to put anything in my way of 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 not going. So um, I made the determination, and he finally wrote me a letter accepting me for the one year program. Uh, and I went with a little letter of where the place was without knowing what city it was in, what kind of weather to expect or or anything. I just, you know, that's kind of how I went. <laughs> so, well, you know, Taiwan, um, even though I only spent a year there, I'd consider that the most seminal experience of my life. Really? Um, yes. Experientially now, from, right? a, from a professional standpoint or also from a personal growth standpoint? From a, an everything standpoint. Oh, wow. Um, um, so, you know, when I went to Taiwan, everybody thought I was crazy because, you know, the other residents in the program that I was with, you know, if they, if they did fellowships, they usually did it in cosmetic because they want to make money. Um, and I'd already passed through that phase, um, through, uh, the stock market. I used to actually trade the market, you know, before there was even such a thing as day trading, I had begun that process lost money but eventually made so much that i realized that money was no longer an issue and i didn't feel as though uh, the pursuit of money um, was worthy of a cause in and of itself so when i went to taiwan to do microsurgery which are long you know six seven eight hour long procedures very tedious very intricate um and at the same time, they don't pay much compared to cosmetic surgery, which is, you know, very minor little indeed stuff, but, you know, pays much better. Um, everybody thought I was crazy. Uh, but for me, it was a, um, it was a great draw. And um, so when I went to Taiwan, essentially, I 
maybe it's possible that I may have been the first black person they've ever seen before. <laughs> De- definitely the first Ethiopian. Mm. Um, you know, uh, and um, you know, it took me it took me a few months to kind of get used to it uh, because I really had no understanding of of how they operated. And I mean, talk about culture shock. That's a culture shock. Um, and uh, after the first three months, when everything kind of uh, smoothed out and I knew my place and they knew me uh, or were comfortable with me, um, I was able to do these great operations with them. Um, but I also was able to have enough free time for the first time in my life, I think I could say. Um, up to that point, um, uh, in my conscious memory, I've always, there's always been things I, I had been responsible you know, for or I've been dictated by. This was the first time that I could just do three days a week of surgery and then nothing else for the remainder of the week. So those days were entirely my own. And what did you do when, when you had those days off? So, you know, it's a good question because there's in Taiwan, there's not much to do. It's not, people think Thailand, they always mistake the two. Mm-hmm. In Thailand, there's a lot of stuff to do, mm-hmm. but in Taiwan, <laughs> nothing to do. <laughs> it's, it's a big, uh, it's a big uh, factory or industrial country, right? It's an industrial country. You know, the, the language barrier is thick and, and I couldn't learn, you know, Chinese or you know, Mandarin or Taiwanese. Um, enough to be able to speak, and they didn't speak English sufficiently to for any communication. So, you know, basically friendships and social relationships is basically almost out. Um, uh, it's not a it's not a nice looking place. I mean, it's, you know, things are kind of metropolitan, built up, kind of haphazard. Uh, it's not aesthetically really that pleasing. The food I thought was horrible. I it wasn't like you know, it was, it's not like Chinese food in the really? U.S. or or even Chinese food in, in China. I, I didn't enjoy it. So, you know, when you look at everything overall, I really should not have enjoyed it. However, <laughs> almost everyone that I know of that has been there as a fellowship usually overstays um, and have fond memories of, of, of their life there. So, so, what do you, me, so what do you do when, you, when, you're, when you have four days to yourself in a, in, a, in a country, you know, doesn't offer you the types of things that you enjoy? What took up your time? So, you know, uh, uh, essentially, I'd wake up in the morning, go get some breakfast, take the bus into Taipei, I'd wander around, I'd go to the gym, I'd try to find some new place to go eat something weird, um, go watch a movie, you know, work on, I started my book then, um, start writing, reading, you know, I'd go to another part of town, um, if I felt like it, I'd go to a club or a bar in the evening. If not, I'd just kind of come back, go back home, watch a movie, uh, paint, uh, go for a run. I mean, there's just these kind of things, mostly solitary. There were a lot of foreigners with whom I could have kind of developed friendships with, but I, um, I didn't want to. I kind of shunned them away. I mean, this is these are not things that I thought of actively, but I just felt like, whoa, this is my... This is my free time. This is my personal free time I've never had. So I'm going to kind of just enjoy it. And I, would, and I noticed that I just pushed everyone away and just got into my own sphere, my own little bubble in life. And I also traveled a lot. I, if I had three or four days off in a row, um, I'd just book a flight and go somewhere in Asia. So within that year, I traveled 12 to 12 different <laughs> destinations in one year. Oh, wow. So... Um, 
uh, I mean, I had an absolute blast. I mean, it was, uh, it's a very difficult uh, thing to communicate for anyone who hasn't had that experience, but to be able to have that kind of freedom um, uh, from oppression, I mean, because that's how I felt I had been throughout my entire life, you know, especially in the US, it, it, you know, to have that freedom for a sufficiently long enough time and you witness how it makes, you know, your, not just your enjoyment of life better, but it makes you better in so many different ways. It, it's, you know, it imparts a significant, a robustness of your emotional and physical health. Um, and that basically was a major turning point in my life. That was a seminal year without which you and I wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> so, so after that year in, in, in Taiwan, you went back to California? So after that year, I, I, I wanted to, you know, when I was in college, you know, I had volunteered in this hospital called Cedar sinai Medical Center uh, through my family friends. I mean, it's a Jewish hospital and, you know, my one, one of Marsha's friends was a board of trustees member. So he had gotten me a job as a volunteer. I got paid. I don't know why they called me a volunteer, but it looked good on my CV. So that was that. Um, and I remember as a, as a sophomore college student, I said, you know what? I want to be, I want to work in this hospital as a super specialist and head of my own little division or department, whatever. Which you did, right? <laughs> and that's exactly, I mean, the concept I got from them was exactly how I would have written it for myself. And um, uh, so, I, you know, whereas most people overstay their time in Taiwan, I, you know, I rushed to finish it up and, and come back to LA as soon as possible and resume my job as director of plastic and reconstructive surgery trauma and director of wound center, the first plastic surgeon to be hired by the hospital. You know, the 87 plastic surgeons who had board privileges in the hospital all rose in arms, you know, tried to block you know, the creation of my position. They voted 87 to zero. That's probably the first and only time they ever voted uh, unanimously. And, um, and despite all of that, I had been hired to this absolutely astounding position, which I don't think I've heard of any, except for one plastic surgeon ever being able to get, you know, just following um, uh, completion of training. So, you know, I was really, really, really excited to come back to LA. So, so the, the position was great. The moment, I mean, I was so excited. I was, I was literally in a high the whole time that I, you know, after I got the position, because I, you know, outside of that, UC San Diego had offered me a position and USC had offered me a position. And, and so this was just unbelievable. So I, I, you know, I came back to LA the moment I hit LAX, my plane hit LAX. I, I went into a most profound depression. Really? Which I never, I never had experienced. I mean, I, I could say that pretty much, I think my entire life in the US had been melancholic, you know, within the shades of that, of that feeling without realizing it until I went to Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan, I would say, you know, I was happy as a kid in Ethiopia. I was never happy in the US and never realized how unhappy I was until I went to Taiwan and I was able to gain that happiness that I had as a child again. 
So for me, that was a shock. I mean, that, that whole emotional journey was a shock when I went to Taiwan. But I, I never understood it. I never consciously calculated what the hell it was that I was experiencing. So all this stuff is going on subconsciously. So, you know, I'm excited to go back to the to the U.S. Everybody's impressed with the job that I got. You know, my even my chairman was just utterly shocked and jealous. Um, and um, and the moment I hit LAX, I went into a profound depression, which I never felt before. So I didn't even know how depressed. I mean, I didn't know what to do with that feeling, and I didn't know where it come from, uh, where it came from. So. I resumed this position. The other plastic surgeons who were there, they were pretty much all Jewish, a few maybe black, one, I think this one guy was black, a few were non-Jewish, but pretty much all, the rest were all, you know, typical white men, you know, gung-ho Trump-like people. So they were on the attack. So I started my, my, my job. My, in fact, my first operation I ended up doing was one that was never done in California. A specific way of doing a breast reconstruction, they were just shocked, you know, because usually when people come out of training, they do little bits of stuff. They're not, you know, they're not confident. Uh, they have complications and all that stuff. Well, I came out with an operation none of them know how to do. And the only guy that had, that was an expert at this in the U.S., um, had a practice in Louisiana and had patients flying to him from New York and Los Angeles to get their breast reconstructions from him because he did that technique. So now I start out my practice doing this successfully. They were just, I mean, they just felt the whole, you know, earthquake beneath their uh, <laughs> feet. And they knew that if I kind of stuck around, um, it's the end of their business. I mean, they, they, that's, that's kind of how they looked at it. So they went on a full-fledged attack. This is from within, right? This is from the same uh, hospital. Yes, because they, you know, the, the private practitioners who, who use the hospital for their own whatever. So but the hospital had my back. And the first three months, I kind of persevered. Um, and I don't know what the hospital administration told them or whether, it, you know, I don't know what happened, but they eventually kind of receded into the background and stopped attacking me. So, so I went over that hump, but I still remained profoundly depressed. Um, things were looking better. I got a nicer office. I was having more patients come by. I was doing bigger stuff. I was becoming known for microsurgery. Uh, people send me patients from other parts of, of California, even you know, from north and all that stuff. People who had major wounds that nobody wanted to do microsurgical procedures for. So within a year, um, I had, I can say uh, professionally and career-wise, everything was perfect. I mean, it could not be better. It's a great start for a, for a career. They paid me more than I needed. Um, I had no debt. So everything was on the up and up. But how I felt about it was... I felt as though I had an anaphylactic reaction to my return to the U.S. and it wouldn't let up. This is the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. Tedros Mastella. So please make sure to join us for part two next week on www.ethiospodcast.com or on iTunes or the Google Play Store.